As we continue in the book of Acts, Paul has been, uh, he's been in a legal situation for a good number of weeks. He has experienced uh, many trials and he has had many accusers um, over a great period of time. And the thing about trials in that day is uh, they often had their own rules and regulations based upon uh, what, who, who was running the trial. Uh, in this case, Paul both comes under uh, the council, facing the council of the religious leaders on the Jewish side. But then he also faces the Romans and the Roman trial brought under the judgment of Rome. And because of the way that uh, the judicial system often works, uh, there have been many situations and circumstances where uh, Paul has experienced great injustice. And I think that this is something that we can relate to because, you know, in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, there are, there are many uh, trials that have happened where uh, you see the outcome of the trials and you think, that, that can't be right. The ruling that is brought down, the verdict, seems to be unjust. Someone was convicted of something that they did not do. They are experienced an injustice in that they were uh, subjected to judgment that they did not deserve. Uh, they were innocent and called guilty. And the guilty often go free. And I think for you and I, as observers... There's nothing more frustrating to see a, a wrong like that happen, to see an injustice, to see laws that are made, but then as God's people witness those laws broken or even seeing laws that are made uh, that are unjust laws, they're not right, they're not righteous, they are not true. And we can say this because the laws that set up and govern our world and the Roman world, they're not God's laws. And so Rome is making laws that, of course, stand against the kingdom of Christ. And in our present situation in the U.S., we feature laws that are good and right and along uh, righteous Laws, but we also have laws that would be also against uh, what the scriptures say. And the scriptures tell us that God is the one who will judge rightfully and finally, and his judgment is just and true. And he is the one that sees not only into the words that we speak, but he sees into the hidden motives of our heart, the things that we are doing the reasons that we are doing things. And so as we come to the circumstance of Paul this morning, we see that he's experiencing, again, great injustice. But we see how he deals with it. So we read in verse 22, Paul, uh, still on trial, he's facing Felix, who is the governor at this time, He's previously uh, been with another governor, but now he is with Felix. And this is the third, fourth time that Paul has presented his case. We read in verse uh, 22, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune has come down, I will decide your case. What is happening in this moment is that Paul uh, has been on trial and uh, he has been on trial several times now, and now he's facing Felix. The previous governors that he's been on trial before were not as educated about Paul's background and his circumstances and the religious nature of his claims. But this man, Felix, is aware. He knows 
uh, he has some understanding. He's aware of uh, the background of Judaism. And he is being brought these charges by the religious leaders who are against Paul. We've already seen that they've uh, tried to set up a plan with these assassins to murder Paul. The assassins asked the religious leaders to come and uh, help lure Paul into this trap. And uh, the Roman government stepped in and uh, thwarted that plan. But uh, here, the religious leaders are now coming uh, and they want Felix to pass a judgment. They really want Felix to allow them to, to uh, persecute Paul and to kill him. And Paul, he hasn't, he hasn't done anything, as we'll, we'll see again. But Felix, he has no intention of being caught in this trap. He doesn't want to be put into a position where he is judging over these religious doctrines. And he says... We're not going to do that. I'm going to, uh, we're just going to adjourn for today. And when the tribune who originally arrested Paul comes down, he will, uh, we, we will have the trial then. And so uh, they wait for this uh, tribune this Roman soldier who originally captured Paul. Now, the reason for this is important because. Real, realistically, uh, the tribune was the only neutral party there in the original altercation that happened. In the original time that he was, Paul was arrested, the religious leaders just wanted to kill Paul anyway, so they weren't going to be great witnesses. And uh, this man, Felix, has already heard some of the stories already, so he's like, let's just wait until Lysias, this tribune, comes. Verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So there is this call for protection around Paul. Now, this is not so much as we've seen in the past because Paul is thought to have some great authority. Uh, We've seen in the previous jail that Paul was able to kind of command some of the centurions and tell them, oh, there's a plot that's happening, and they listened to him, and they really respected Paul, and they saw the things that Paul was uh, communicating. But here, this isn't the case, right? We're beginning to see these injustices in the legal system start to creep up. There's a problem here. He says, okay, well, let's, let's make sure that Paul is well taken care of. Let's make sure that he's not Uh, in chains and uh, he's locked down as tightly as everyone else let's give him some freedom and let's let his friends come in and family take care of him he was allowed to have visitors and this is one of the places where we often uh, hear of Paul in his letters to the churches writing from prison. This could have been uh, the beginning of some of these communications that Paul wrote. The friends would bring in letters, and uh, he would write to them. And, uh, you know, often in his letters he would say, you know, although I'm in chains, uh, you know, most of those letters came from Rome, but a similar situation where the friends had access. And then we find this, uh, Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So this woman, Drusilla, Luke specifically highlights for us that she is here. We have uh, Felix who is the governor, and then the wife of Felix, Drusilla. Now, why does, uh, why does Paul do this for us? Or why does, why does Luke do this for us? He does this because Drusilla plays an important role in kind of setting the tone and the context here. Drusilla is the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I, and she had been previously married to uh, Azesus, who is the king of Amasa, uh, she, uh, she is the youngest, or she is the sister of Herod uh, the Ag- Agrippa II. And so, what happened here 
is that she uh, was in a position where she is wooed away from her previous husband, Azizus, and she commits adultery and is now with Felix here. So this is being highlighted that there is this uh, man, Felix, who is the governor, and he is living in such a way, and Drusilla, who's supposed to live according to the laws of the Jews, the law of God, which would have uh, prohibited this, uh, she is not acting in nature with God's character and with God's laws. And so they send for Paul, and he begins to speak to them. Now, if you haven't been with us in the previous uh, chapters and the previous in, uh, instances, thus far, whenever Paul is brought before governors, his primary communication uh, in this most recent section is not so much that he is proclaiming the gospel, but that he is concerned with portraying himself as a Jew that is operating according to standard Jewish practice. He wants to show that he's not there to overthrow the Roman government. That's the, the main thing that he's getting at. For the religious leaders, he wants them to understand the gospel. But for, the, for, the Rome, for Rome, he wanted them to understand that this isn't, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a revolutionary. I'm not coming in trying to overthrow. But here, as he comes to Felix and his Jewish wife, Drusilla, this is what he does. He's got a private setting, a private audience, and now, now he's focused on proclaiming the gospel. He knows the audience. He knows who he's speaking to. And so he says, I'm going to speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus. Now, for you and I, we just think like, yeah, like, okay, great. But the way that Luke writes this and the way that Paul proclaims this is important because when he puts that title Christ Jesus before, uh, in the way that the language structures worked at that time, what he's saying is he was emphasizing the lordship of Jesus, that he is the Christ, that he is over all and rules over all. He was making an emphasis, emphasis to say that Jesus, as you trust in him, has a claim on your entire life. And because of this, he goes on and he explains Christ Jesus this way. Verse 25. He reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. These three things. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. As you think about those things, those are really important topics. When you think about the lordship of Christ, when you think about the coming judgment, because here's the reality. When you begin to talk to people who don't have an understanding of the totality of the gospel, and you say, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and then people begin to say, like, oh, I'm a Christian too, you know, and... Maybe they find out, like, you know, you're a little bit more of a serious Christian than they are. We begin to hear things like this. Oh, put, put a good word in for me with the man upstairs. We begin to hear things like, you know, I'm just going through life and, like, I believe in God. But at the end of the day, like, I just want my, my good to outweigh my bad. We begin to hear things like that come from not only the mouths of those people who we're talking with, but a lot of times we begin to hear those things coming out of our own mouths. We might not say it in that way specifically. But I would suspect more often than not, the way that you and I are thinking about our lives is that we just simply want the good to outweigh the bad. And there's nothing wrong with the good outweighing the bad. Sure, that's great. You want the good to outweigh the bad. But the reality is that when you stand before God, you won't have had enough good if you've had any bad. 
It doesn't matter how much good you have. You can never tip the scales of the bad that has happened in your life. The things that you've done and the things that you have failed to do. No amount of good that you have done in your life will ever outweigh that one tiny white lie. That one mistake that you made, a youthful indiscretion. You can do good the rest of your entire life, but when you stand before God, there is no balancing of the scales. And for Paul, what he is saying is, because you cannot balance the scales, because you cannot be right before God on your own, you're stuck. This is why he gets to speaking about righteousness, self-control. Because a lot of times when we think about being righteous, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to control myself and I'm going to do the best for myself. But when we think about standing before God, yourself will never be enough. And this is why we need the work of Christ. Why he is our advocate before the Father. This is why Christ came to earth living a perfect life that we could not live on our behalf and paying for our punishment that we deserved, that we should have received, and instead we are the recipients of that grace. We are the recipients of salvation when we trust in Christ. And trusting in Christ doesn't mean doing good things. It means recognizing that you can never do enough good things and that you need Jesus as the core of who you are. That he is your identity. This is why Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. You're putting yourself down. You're putting your person, your identity to death and saying, I'm going to be with him. See, one of the, one of the ways that I've experienced this is recently uh, I've, I've taken up a new job and I was at like this really like super out of my league fancy party like in Beverly Hills a couple weeks ago for work just like bonkers like amount of money spent on this party and nobody knows who I am and and every single person there knows that I don't belong in the VIP room with like all the celebrities But yet, I can walk up and they're like, oh, like you can't go in there. And they're, and they're like, oh, who are you with? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm with this chef. And they're like, oh my, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And they just want, want me to go in. Because what I'm not there doing, I'm not coming on my own identity. I'm saying, this person is representing me. They are my calling card. And if, if you are going to stop them, or you're going to stop me, it's the same as if you're stopping them. And so I have access more than I would have ever had. I have freedom and confidence to move in that arena on the basis not of who I am, because I'm like a nobody and I feel uncomfortable there anyways, but I get to have access on the basis of who I'm working for. My identity at that party in that moment, in that interaction, was with somebody else who was more prominent. And friends, the truth of the gospel is We have an identity in Christ. So that when Satan, the accuser, comes in and he says, you are a sinner, you're worthless, you don't have value here upon this earth, we can say, you're right, but I know someone who believes that I have value, so much so that he knew all the things that I had ever done and all the things that I ever would do, and he came and he gave his life for me. We can agree with the enemy and say, I'm worse than you ever think, Satan. 
I'm more horrible than you could ever imagine. But I'm more loved by Christ than you could ever believe. This is what it means to have our identity in Christ. And when you have that, when your mind is right and you know the truth of the gospel and you're renewed in your mind, you can walk around and withstand anything because you know who your life is hidden in, in Christ with God. And this is what Paul was experiencing as he makes his way through these trials. He wants to communicate the truth of the gospel to these men who are showing extreme uh, injustice to him. He has no reason to be on trial, but yet he's most interested in making Christ known. He proclaims the truth of the gospel, the coming judgment. And here's the response, again, that we hear from Felix. Verse 25. Felix was alarmed. You see, for Felix, as he hears the implications of the gospel, and I think as you and I hear the implications of the gospel, it is a little bit alarming. It is a little bit alarming because what it involves is a change of allegiance. You're no longer most loyal to yourself, but you're most loyal to Christ. You're no longer uh, living out your life for yourself. Your behavior is going to be different. Your priorities are going to be different. We seek first His kingdom. We want to know him and enjoy him and make him known. The things that you once desired, you don't desire anymore. When you take up your cross and you follow Christ and you deny yourself, your allegiance is not to yourself anymore. And so when you're considering your life and you're considering the things that are before you, your career path, your vacation time, the resources that you have coming into your life, money, relationships, those, those things that you experience, they're not, you don't interact with them on the basis of your own wisdom and your own knowledge and your own desires and your own priorities. The question that you now ask is, how can I serve Christ most faithfully with these things that are in front of me? And a huge part of that is being Led by the Holy Spirit. Because, friends, there will be times where the Holy Spirit says to you, that vacation time that you got, those 14 days that you've been saving up all year, like it's time for a missions trip, those aren't going to be used for you. And there are going to be times where you're going to say, like, oh, I should go on a missions trip, and the Holy Spirit's going to say to you, like, no, you just need to rest. And, like, you need to, like, like go home and, like, chill out or go, like, on a trip and do something relaxing. But it's never one way or the other, and we would like it to be one way or the other, because then we don't need God. Oh, here's the rules. We always have to do it this way. But see, God always wants us to live in that tension of trusting him and relying on him to ask and interact with everything that we have and say, what do I do with this? Not, I know what to do with this, because you don't know, because you're not God. And so he has given us these things, all things, for his glory. We want to use them for, for his glory. And he, Felix, is alarmed at the possibility of the implications that the gospel has in his life. He says this, go away for the present, and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So he puts off this, again, decision about making one a decision about Christ. He's like, like I'll talk to you about it another time. And he even puts off again, He's like, already heard the evidence. He's like, I'm not going to release Paul. Let's just put this off again. All right. Now, here we get to some of the injustices and why uh, Felix is acting this way. Verse 26. We get mixed motives here all of a sudden. At the same time, at the same time as he wanted to summon him again, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. 
So he sent for him often and conversed with him. So Felix is kind of this corrupt governor guy who's like, oh, look, like I know Paul's got some money or I know he's got some friends who have money. So we're just going to keep him in jail and I'll keep like hinting to him like, hey, you could get out of this if you want to pay me. You want to pay your way out of this. So we have this kind of corrupt, corrupt government official who Paul is dealing with and is asking for a bribe again and again. And he keeps bringing, trotting Paul out to have these conversations and Paul is not giving in. But Paul's taking these opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Here's what happens. Verse 27. When two years had elapsed. like Felix is just like keeping this on repeat. He just wants it like again and again and again. Two years. He thinks he's going to wear Paul down. Two years had elapsed. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So, Two years of conversations and asking for bribes. Nothing happens. Then we get a new governor, uh, this guy Festus, who by all accounts in Roman history is like just like an epic governor, and he just kills it. He does a great job, and he's not sketchy like Felix. Uh, <clears throat> now, this would have been a great time to release uh, Paul because Felix is like, look, I'm not going to get this bribe out of you. But instead... Felix wants to do the Jews a favor, so he leaves Paul in jail uh, again. Now, verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. Stick with me. We're almost done. Now, after three days, Festus had arrived in the province. He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So the Jews are super unhappy that, again, uh, Paul doesn't get released out into the wild either because they want to kill him. Uh, they're unhappy with how Felix has handled the trial thus far because Felix won't convict him and he's been having these conversations with him for two years. So nobody's really happy in this situation. And he, they, they, see an opportunity to influence this new governor, Festus. They're like, hey, like, new guy, like, let's try some stuff out. And so, in order to accomplish their goal of killing Paul, they say, hey, like, do, a, do us a favor. Let, let's transfer Paul to Jerusalem, and we'll have the trial there. Again, we see insane hypocrisy because they have, they're saying one thing, but then they have these hidden motives. These hidden motives here are they're planning an ambush to kill him on the way. They're preparing an ambush to murder Paul. Now, consider who is planning this. The religious leaders. The people who are supposed to be spiritual. Insane hypocrisy. Now, previously, it was a group of men who had tried to plan an ambush to kill Paul. And they went to the religious leaders and they said, Hey, look, we're planning to kill Paul. Would you ask the Romans, to transfer him and like, we'll take care of it before he gets to you. That way, you know, you won't be found out. And if anything bad happens, like it won't, it won't be like you're involved. Now the religious leaders are like, forget it. Like we're just going to do it ourselves. We will kill him. And they make the ask and they're going to kill him themselves. Like this is just escalated more and more and more and more. Verse four. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So it's likely that Festus was kind of aware of what had happened previously with uh, the tribune Claudius Lysias and uh, Felix and the reason that he got transferred in the first place. It's really doubtful that Festus is super gullible and just like, oh, you know, he, he doesn't know what's happening. So it seems like he's aware uh, of, this, of previous plots and what they want him to do. And so Festus is committed to this Roman trial, this Roman style of justice that he would bring. And so he says, look, let's keep him at Caesarea. I'm going to be there. Why don't you guys come up? we will have a trial. He's committed to doing this lawfully. He asks for the men of authority from the religious leaders to come with them. 
and to bring charges in a formal fashion. Verse 6, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. So here's, here's the deal. They actually have kind of this similar trial as they've had previously. The case is now two years old, though. Two years old. And so it's going to be pretty hard to bring any eyewitnesses that they already couldn't produce two years previously at several trials. Like, they couldn't line up their facts, and they couldn't bring anybody previously. After two years, like, there's just no way that they're going to be able to accomplish this. And so they were probably throwing out some generalities, uh, you know, serious accusations, but nothing that could be substantiated. Now we find, verse 8, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So Paul's point is this. Neither against the Jews or the law, so I am innocent of the religious charges that you're bringing against me. And then he gets to uh, the political charges, things that would be social in nature. He says, I am uh, innocent of those as well. None of this is right. None of these things against Caesar. I, I haven't committed an offense. So he's making this declaration. Now, what Paul's doing is he's emphasizing that he is a, a, a member of the Roman Empire in good standing. He's not proclaiming his allegiance to Rome. He's simply saying, like, I haven't done anything that would break your laws. He's not trying to come and say, like, oh, you know, like, I'm all about Rome. Uh, I, you know, I'm all for, like, worshiping the emperor and, like, all of that. He doesn't get into those shenanigans. He is focused on proving his innocence. Now, Paul has to make this this defense that he's made again and again and again and again. He's faced bribe after bribe. He has faced uh, them covering up charges or covering up things that, that have been done to him that they would not want to come to light. He was stretched out to be whipped, which was illegal. There were a lot of things that were done to him that were illegal, and he's just lived with. And Paul here has made it his his goal to represent Christ faithfully. We get a little bit of insight into his life as we read uh, of similar attitudes as he was in the Philippian jail. He talks in his letter uh, to the Philippians of being in chains but being content. And in Philippians 2, 14, he says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see what Paul is getting at there? He says this, as Christians, our conduct, the way that we live in allegiance to Christ should be without grumbling or disputing, no arguments, But then he he makes this point, that you may be blameless and innocent. You see, it's our job to make sure that when people do bring these charges, that they don't have a leg to stand on. We need to make sure that when they are making these accusations, that there is no substance to the charge. That we can say, we've lived rightly before God and man, and we might be receiving accusations, but they are untrue. We want to live blamelessly in the eyes of all people. And Paul did just this. This is why there's no eyewitnesses, neither two years ago or 
at his current trial. Stick with me. Verse 9, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, so now Festus is up trying to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried there on charges before me? Now, we said that Festus is like a pretty good guy comparatively. Uh, he, he is, and when he's trying to do them a favor, he's not trying to do them a favor in the sense that he's uh, acting corruptly, but his primary charge is to keep the peace in this region. And so he's just trying to kind of give them like some sort of concession so that way they feel like he's trying to take care of them a little bit and you know, he doesn't want the, the Jews to start a riot and this whole thing, which they've done previously. And so he's trying to kind of give them a, a little something to make them feel okay. And so he puts forth this suggestion to Paul, hey, like, do you want to do the, the trial there? He wants, to, he wants to preserve the peace, but he also wants Paul to have a fair trial, right? We, we know that he knows what's going to happen, and so here's how he says it. He says, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Not before the religious leaders, which they've already tried to do, or before like a lower court. Paul's like, or Festus, Festus is like, I, I'll do the trial. Like, I will be there. Do you want to do this? Here's Paul's response. <clears throat> I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, verse 10, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done nothing wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, Paul makes it clear again. There's no need for another trial. I'm in the right place. I know where I'm supposed to be. If we're going to keep going in circles with this, like I'm just going to move up the chain. He knows that Felix or Festus has been presented with evidence. It's already been heard. He knows everybody is aware of the evidence. Like there's not going to be more information that comes out. And so instead of delaying this, he puts this forth more directly and just says, Look, I'm in the right spot at the right time with the right people. Let's make this happen. And then he presents it this way. If I am a wrongdoer, if I have committed offenses, then I'm not opposed to paying the penalty penalty for those. If I've done wrong, he says, he, he's not going to refuse to die. He will take the punishment. But... He says, the charges that have been brought against me are untrue. They won't stick. And no one has the right to hand me over because I am innocent. Essentially, what Paul is doing is this. He sees what's happening with the Jews. And he sees what's happening with Felix or Festus trying to keep the peace. And he's like, look, like, I'm, I'm going like, to help you guys out. Like, I'm not going to be this diplomatic gift where you're going like, to send me over here. and I'm not going to be used like that. I'm moving up the food chain. So he says this, I appeal to Caesar. It was the right of every Roman citizen to escalate their court case before it was heard in a current court. And so this is kind of like a preliminary hearing. Paul uh, executes this and he's like, look, like I'm just going to move up to the, the highest level court. We'll handle it with the emperor himself. At the time, uh, the emperor was Caesar Nero. He started off doing pretty well, and he was actually quite kind to Christians. It didn't end so hot uh, for the Christians. Uh, Nero turned out to be like just horrific, and probably by the time Paul got there, wasn't like in a really great space. I don't know how much Paul knew about Caesar Nero and the way that he treated them at this time, but here's what Paul did know. That Jesus said he needed to go to Rome to proclaim the gospel. So he's like, look, like Caesar, Caesar Nero's in Rome. I got to get there anyways. Like, let's just do this. So he puts himself on the fast track to get over there to be transferred to Rome. So Paul is here being one who is experiencing injustice in the legal system. He is the one who is receiving or he's being told, oh, you know, you should, you should really pay me some money, bribe the Felix wanted these bribes, and for two years, Paul resisted them. He gets put before court after court where they're like, oh, we're going to toss you over here to this person, and everyone wants to do a favor to the Jews, and Paul doesn't want to be a political gift. He knows 
that he is in a system where he is experiencing this. And so the question then for you and I is how, how do we deal with this? Because the climate today, we, we, as we started off saying, was it's pretty similar. There are laws that are on the books now that are like unjust laws that go against God's law and God's character. And there are ways that we should be acting, things that we should be doing that are uh, more in line with the scriptures. How do we deal with this? All of us probably know or know of someone who has experienced some level of injustice or difficulty with the legal systems, just like Paul. Here's what we're told, not only by Paul there in that passage we looked in Philippians, uh, Philippians 2, that we should, do, we should live without grumbling and compl- complaining, making sure that we are blameless. That's one part of it, because we want to be that way. So no one can bring an accusation against us. And when we do stand there, and we have done the right things, and we have lived according to the law, and they bring them, things don't stick. That's one portion of it. But then there's the portion that we cannot control, when on the other end, people are just out to get you. There's bribes and corruption. There's bad laws. How do we do this? First uh, Peter chapter 2. Flip over there with me. We're going to end with this. We take our cues, of course, from Christ. First, first Peter chapter 2. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. One enjoys suffering or one endures suffering unjustly. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Peter presents two portions for us. There's a time where you haven't done the right thing. You have acted uh, foolishly. You've sinned and you suffer for it. He's like, that's just normal. Like you're going to have the consequences of your foolishness. He points that out for us. Now, here is what he gets at, though, more specifically. Verse 20, but when you do good and suffer, you endure it. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The expectation for Peter is that you will do good and suffer. So doing bad doesn't always equal suffering. You will experience hardship and difficulty even when you do good, when you do the right thing. So then how then do we respond And he gives us Jesus as the pattern for responding. He says, you're not going to be able to do it on your own because if your identity, if yourself is the thing that is most offended, then you're going to lash out and you're going to respond in a way and try to prove that you have done good. 
You're going to try to prove that you are right. Right? Isn't that the way that it happens when people uh, treat you unjustly, friends? And they say, oh, you know, you're acting this way. You've treated me this way. Most of the time, we don't say like, yeah, you're right. We say, well, that's because you were doing this. Immediately, you come back and tell them how they were acting unjustly, how they acted sinfully towards you. You, you don't come back and, and just say like, oh, you're, you're totally right. Most of the time, our hearts are designed in a way and we respond in a way where we're defending ourselves by trying to further cut down or show how our actions are validated by the way that someone else has acted toward us. But our model is Christ. And as we said earlier, if we have acted towards Jesus as his enemies, he hasn't come and said, I'm going to cut you all down. He saw our sinfulness and he came and he gave his life for us. That is the way that we operate with those who act unjust towards us. Jesus didn't come and accuse us and say, oh, you guys did all this stuff towards me, so you know you really are going to deserve this and I'm not going to worry about you. The scriptures tell us while we were his enemies, while we were his sinners, while we were opposed to him, while we were against him, while we weren't looking for him, he came to us to bless us. And so this is the regular nature. Now, I want you to see this in verse 25, or 22, excuse me. Peter gives us the example. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, what Peter says is the way that we get through this, the way that we live this is to be like Jesus. People will revile us, but we don't revile in return. People will come against us, but we don't come against them in return. Instead, we commit ourselves to God who judges justly, who judges righteously, who judges true. We don't have to defend ourselves. And more than that, not only are we not to defend ourselves, Peter further goes on in chapter 3, and he says this. And this is the harder thing for all of us to do, but this is the way that Jesus lived and the way that Jesus calls us to live. And so if you take anything away from it, when you suffer unjustly, when you suffer difficulty, don't just, uh, don't just not return violence or frustration or Don't act in revenge. It's not only that, but it's also something that we should do. Right? Because Jesus not only paid for our sin, he didn't just say like, okay, like I'm going to cover your punishment. But then what else did he do? He brought us into his family. He made us heirs. He said, I want you to be mine. Not only do I not want to punish you, I'm going to pay for your punishment that you should have received. And then I'm going to make you a part of my family. He did something beyond negating our punishment through his work. He blessed us. Verse, uh, 1 Peter 3, uh, verse 8. Literally, last thing. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. The way that we ought to live is that when we experience injustice, we don't write like a huge blog post about it. We don't like have like this whole thing where we're starting like this crazy campaign. We bless those who revile us. When we experience difficulty, when there are people who wrong us, not only do we forgive as Christ has forgiven us, but we go out of our way to be a blessing to them. I'm telling you, this is the hardest thing to live out, but it is the realest thing because it, it breaks 
the mind of the person that you're doing it to. There is no rhyme or reason. It breaks the way that there is some level of hostility. Because the alternative is if you don't bless and you curse, then you just turn into someone who's bitter. And bitterness is a dangerous poison for your soul. We want to bless. When Jesus was there and they were nailing him to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. He didn't say, you guys don't know what you're doing. You don't know who I really am. He didn't say, you'll regret this. He didn't say, I'll see you guys in a couple days. Because those would have all been legitimate like responses. Because he's the only one that like, really was, hadn't done anything wrong. But he prayed for them. He tried to bless them. Even in that moment. This is what he's called us to. Now I'll tell you this. You will not be able to do this. You will not be able to accomplish this. It will never, ever in a million years happen if you try to do this out of your own identity. If you are not rooted in Christ, if Christ is not your identity, if you have not walked the hill to Calvary with Jesus, if you've not denied yourself and taken up your cross and followed him, there's no chance you're going to do this. Because as you walk with Jesus, he shows you how to accomplish this. He's the only one that knows. Otherwise, we're just going to end up punishing the other people who we're interacting with. But Jesus has already been punished so that we do not have to punish others. And we can offer Christ and him crucified to them. And so in our lives... Let's take the opportunity to bless and not curse and to exalt Christ in every single way. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your faithfulness to us and your kindness to us. And we pray that you would work in our hearts now, bringing this word to bear. Change us, transform us, make us new, and help us with the difficult task of blessing when we experience injustice when we are on, when we have done good, when we've done the right thing, and yet we still experience persecution, difficulty, or we need you to work in, in our hearts. Because we know that if we try to respond on our own, we're going to be in trouble. And so help us, remind us that we have died to ourselves and that we live now in you. We want to gaze at you and see how wonderful you truly are. And so, Lord, work in our hearts this morning. We love you. Amen.